Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me again on Sound Perspective. Uh, my name is Alfie Faber. Very pleased to meet you. And in this podcast, I interview the genius artists who combine sight and sound in film. That's what I love. That's what it's all about. Um, I am so excited for today's guest, David France. David is a documentary filmmaker in New York who began his career in the 1980s as a print journalist and non-fiction author. He reported on the New York queer scene in the 80s and 90s, being right in the center of the AIDS epidemic. His first feature doco, How to Survive a Plague, was a completely archival account of the radical queer activists who fought for a cure for AIDS. His next two films were The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson and Welcome to Chechnya, which premiered last year at Sundance. Uh, it's the incredibly moving but very horrific story of the systemic genocide of queer people in Chechnya, um, a small state in Russia. It's not widely available in every country just yet, but keep an eye out for it because it's an incredibly moving film. Uh, and I think everyone needs to see it. Um, sorry for the dodgy Skype audio. I'm getting really over Skype audio quality, but you know what? It means that I get to interview really awesome people like David, who I wouldn't have access to otherwise. Um, so do excuse the glitches. And also, uh, before you listen, do go follow me on social media. Um, on Instagram, I'm at Alfie Faber. On Facebook, you can find it at Sound Perspective if you just look that up. And on Twitter, we are at Sound Perspect. So you can get updates on all the new episodes and whatnot. Anyway, enjoy David now. Thanks a lot. David Franz, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to chat to you. It's it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. No worries. Um, so David, for in case there's anyone on the podcast who might not know about your history, could you chat a bit about how you went from journalism to filmmaking? What that move was like? Absolutely. I you know I had decades of experience in uh, as an investigative journalist, um, long form. Um, writing so books and and in-depth magazine pieces um and uh i didn't start trying to make my first film until just about 10 years ago uh or 11 years ago and uh that was a big leap for me an exciting one to to try and find a way to work with visuals which i had really done before as an investigative reporter um, how to tell visual stories, um, and the and and how to work with music, which scared me even more than anything. Um, so it was it was a lot of fun learning curve stuff. Mm. But uh, and I didn't think I was going to make more than one film. And what I discovered uh, in my first film, which I I think everybody who makes documentary films already knew, is that the the form is incredibly powerful. It um, finds audiences and motivates and, and invigorates people uh, and culture in ways that nothing else I had ever worked with had done. You know, not, not, not best-selling books, not, not, you know, mainstream uh, long-form articles. 
you know, really nothing. I never had had the kind of cultural power that I had in my hands with, with my first film or with any documentary. And, um, and it just kind of spoiled me. And I mm -hmm. thought, this is where I want to be for now. And so I've stayed, I've done very little writing since I've written one book and, um, but mostly I'm dedicating myself to, to really trying to understand um, how to weaponize documentary films. Mm. Now, when you say you hadn't felt the cult, that cultural impact before, do you feel like visual stories or documentary has a greater emotional impact on people and that's uh, why? I, I, th I think it certainly does have a, a good, strong, solid emotional impact. But there's, I don't know, there's just something so outsized about it. Like, I think that documentary films have power outside of the audiences that have seen it. And they have a way to kind of worm their way into uh, the, the minds and, and thoughts of, of people who haven't even seen the films. Mm -hmm. And you can't say that about books, you know, mm -hmm. certainly not nonfiction books, that yeah. they don't have that kind of power that that even uh, naive audiences uh, have a reaction to. But um, mm. but I think films and maybe all films, I haven't really worked in the feature area, the narrative area, but I mm. think that there's just something about the, our connection as people to that visual storytelling, to that, you know, that 90 minute um, experience is, um, is, is something that we respond to in really key ways. Mm. And you said that you didn't really think you would make another film after How to Survive a Plague. Um, was that, so was your decision to make that because of your personal connection to that story and to that context and having reported during the AIDS crisis in New York? Uh, yes, uh, plus one other thing. So first, uh, before I started working on the documentary, I, I had decided to go back to that to that period, the what I call the plague years, which is between the arrival of the new retrovirus and the and the arrival of effective medication. It's a 15-year period. Um, uh, in that period, there was nothing anybody really could clinically or medically do uh, to help a person with an HIV infection. It was almost 100% uh, fatal. And um, uh, so I thought I, it was time to, to tell that story in book form. Mm. And did a lot of uh, kind of refreshing my memory from that time. I had begun as a journalist in the early 80s mm. um, in response to the AIDS crisis. So it was a story that I felt I knew pretty well, but uh, that I hadn't felt in a long while. So I returned in uh, to this history to write a proposal, uh, as one does, for a book to take out to you know, kind of the publishing houses. And... For refreshing my memory, I went back to some of that old videotape. Mm. Remembered how visceral and powerful that th those images were, and that they were being collected, really for the first time by a by a social movement, recording its own um, uh, actions and experiences so thoroughly. Mm. Um, I wrote the book proposal, and that's just as the economy kind of skidded to a halt in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, around the recession. Uh, and and the collapse of the housing market and um, and you know all of those horrors that we all know about, and it meant that I couldn't get anybody to publish my book, mm. uh, and I was not really engaged much in the area of magazine work either because those things were collapsing. Mm. 
Newsweek by 2009, where I had been working, sold for a dollar. So, you know, so I thought I would just try a documentary with that old footage that I had been uh, looking at. And, yeah. and so and um, and so it was really because I had no other outlet at the time. Right. That I didn't try. But yes, I was, I was already engaged in wanting to go back and historicize that period, which had been so kind of misunderstood in, mm. in literature canon of those times. Uh, so I wanted to go and impact the canon. Mm. Um, what did you find different about storytelling through film as opposed to uh, writing? How do you approach those differently? Um, well, the, 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 probably the first matter is that you can, you, you can squeeze much less story in a film mm. than you can in, you know, a 20,000 word magazine piece or a, a 130,000 word book. Mm. Um, so there's, there's a limit, a kind of a constraint mm. in the form, you know, audience can only sit still for so long and follow so many characters. So, um, and that was tough for me in making How to Survive a Plague because um, ultimately uh, my first cut of the film was 13 hours long. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> and what did get from there to, you know, 110 minutes uh, involved cutting people out of the story. Yeah. And that was really hard for me because I knew so many of those people. Mm. So many of them had died and the footage of them in their kind of fullest power and uh, and anger and creativity and cleverness, all of that, um, to remove that from the film was tough. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, and I wanted to ask about like, what, uh, were you, were you a, were you a lover of film before you started experimenting with it there? Like what were some of your influences when you made the decision to move over? I was, and I would not describe myself as a cineast in any way. Um, um, I'm really a journalist yeah. you know, at heart. Um, I have been a consumer of documentaries, although not typically a, a big fan of documentaries. Mm. Um, the, the way documentaries were being made a decade or two ago was very kind of straightforward talking head stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... I wasn't interested in doing that because I wasn't really interested in watching those kinds of films. Yeah. And, uh, um, but the kind of feature films that I've enjoyed the most are the ones that are based in reality. Right. Um, yeah. I think work, for example, of Paul Greengrass, mm. who is a major influence on me. Mm. Uh, and, um, his bloody Sunday is a phenomenal kind of piece of reporting even mm. about, about, um, those troubles and that crime. Mm. And if, you know, I borrowed um, his pacing from his opening scenes mm. uh, from that film as uh, in homage in the opening scenes of How to Survive a Plague. So, right. um, and I find myself returning to him and his work, um, his ability to throw himself right, throw the audience right into the middle of a story and, yeah. and make you try to, make you have to figure the thing out yourself. Yeah. And, uh, and so, and, and the fact that he does it with the stories of real people mm. and real events often mm. is, was very moving to me. Mm. Ah, I, I'll have to watch that. I haven't seen it. I had a couple of questions I wanted to ask about um, 
the life and death of Marsh P. Johnson. Um, because that was a really interesting evolution from a completely archival film to one which was a kind of hybrid between archival and observational in nature. Um, and what was it like making that uh, jump in style when you, you had that background as a journalist and now you were having to think about the language of shooting stuff and cinema and that kind of thing? It, it was, again, a lot to learn. I mm. had a great team, my cinematographer, Thomas Bergman, fantastic, uh, taught me so much. Mm. Uh, and, um, and it was, it, it was in a way a return to my investigating, you know, background. Mm. Um, so it was kind of a joint investigation into the death of Marty Johnson uh, between myself behind the camera and uh, Victoria Cruz in front of the camera. Um, and that was what kind of uh, made me feel comfortable and confident in in creating that film was was that I was I was pushing forward an investigation and in some cases teaching Victoria um, avenues to pursue and in many cases learning from her mm. of avenues to pursue and um, and that's what kept me really uh, engaged in that film was that we were we really were getting to the bottom of a, pe a piece of history. Um, that had not been plumbed in the past. Yeah. I don't know. If I, I, I was, Marsha died in 1992 mm. and was hired by the Village Voice to investigate her death mm. in 1992 after yeah. her body was covered in the Hudson River. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I began but never finished that work. So for oh, you me, never it, got to finish that investigation, right? It was a piece of business for me. Yeah. And, and, uh, and you know, I I had always wanted to go back to it, and Victoria mm. uh, gave me that impetus and that the the vehicle for doing it. I I met Victoria over the telephone without ever having seen her mm. initially when we were doing this together, and then when I saw her and saw what a tremendous figure she yeah. she strikes, yeah, how beautiful she is, and how incredible like tenacious yeah yeah i just fell in love with her right away and i knew that the camera would too yeah yeah she was a really phenomenal character that's a cool character so right it's a very noirish kind of film yeah and like people like like miss kitty in the in in the prison in the, oh yeah out of some other time and place mm. and um and the story opened up that world for me in, in really like delicious ways yeah because you, didn't you know Marsha? I did know Marsha, yeah. And that's why I wanted to tell the story, because I think Marsha's name was kind of familiar on people's tongues. Mm. But who was Marsha and what yeah. did she really accomplish? And she had become kind of mythological in a way. Mm. And there was a real human being connected to that. And, and I wanted to find that human being and carry it forward to new audiences without stepping on her myth mm. and the mythology of and. Um, and, and to really present our history in a way that's true um, mm. and not been, you know, delved into before. I was stunned that there were no documentaries about Marsha and Sylvia and the work that they had done together and mm. uh, their, 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 their love affair, really. They, they were. Oh, I mean, it's right. Really, I didn't. It's, it's, it, it was not a sexual love, or, mm. but it was a romantic love. Mm. And 
Marcia had met Sylvia when Sylvia was nine years old. Wow. Yeah. Took, and Sylvia was hustling. Marcia was hustling. And Marcia took Sylvia under her wing. Mm. She, she was a teenager herself, but um, still con considerably more mature. And, um, and showed Sylvia the ropes and took care of her. Mm. Made sure she was safe. Mm. And relationship went on for decades. And that was, was so powerful and meaningful. I, I knew her as well. Mm. Um, and I can't say that I was friends with either one of them, but mm. they were towering figures. So when you saw them on the street, people would stop mm. and just, you know, go, there they are. It's like, <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, uh, Marsha is quite like mythologized by, I hadn't heard of uh, Sylvia before the doco. So it was, um, it was very exciting to hear about her part in it as well. Um, well, I think that um, I'd love to talk about uh, Welcome to Chechnya yet, because that's just really an incredibly moving film. Uh, and it was the first of yours that I saw. And so you, you, you got the idea for the film after reading a New Yorker article. Is that right? Correct, yeah, from yeah. Marsha Gessen. Mm. After you read that article... I'm sure that partly what drew you to it was the um, significance of the issue. But was there also additionally like a story that you saw in that or a narrative? Or was it the, uh, the value of what was happening that drew you? Well, I had already known and others across the world had already reported about the, the genocide mm. there. What um, I didn't know... Uh, and no one had written about until Masha traveled to Moscow. Mm. What what ordinary Russians were were doing mm. to try lives? Um, it, you know, I just thought, and this is you know a mistake everybody makes all the time. I think, and I, certainly mm. I make more than I should. I thought that this was a problem that was being taken care of. <laughs> I thought that when it got exposed, yeah, when. Angela Merkel and others raised their voices that that uh, that the plug was going to be pulled on this horrendous atrocity there. Mm. Um, and uh, so Masha uh, re revealed that that wasn't the case and that these everyday LGBT queer Russians were having to do extraordinary things that of the of the kind of kind of perilous activism that I had only read about from the Holocaust, mm. turning their lives in, in, into this kind of steering their lives in directly into the danger mm. uh, was happening there, um, hiding people, rescuing people by hand, mm. them across borders, um, racing ahead of, you know, the pursuit of uh, security officials from, from Chechnya. It, the the amount of just horrendous uh, peril that they were taking on um, is what drew me to it. You know, mm. in a way, it's it's a continuation of the kind of activism that my first two films t talk about, mm. right? This kind of radical queer activism mm. um, that you couldn't imagine people conceptualizing, much less taking on and 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 and, and winning now mm. unfortunately one yet in chechnya but 
uh, they have saved scores and scores and scores of lives. And that's the story I wanted to tell. So, so I called Masha up, um, whom I had known for, for some many years. And I, and I said, let me, you know, can we do this? Mm. And Masha said, well, the problem of course, is that, um, nobody will allow their faces or voices to appear in the film. So it will have mm. to be a film blurred faces. And yeah. At least let me go and talk to everybody. So, mm. um, was there within the week I flew to Moscow um, and um, and just started talking to people about their safety concerns and how we might be able to approach them and could I film and then come up with a solution later and not everybody agreed to let me do it but Mm. everybody in the film did yeah and and you know they which is a huge leap I mean here are people who are like literally being hunted and they let me sneak their secret locations and put their faces on, you know, digital files and carry yeah. them out of there. That was the amount of faith that they showed in me was intense. But they wanted to be able to tell their stories. They wanted to be able to reveal what happened there to mm. to decry the crimes of mm. of Rumsfeld and the Chechen leadership. And so they were they they took a a, a big risk. Yeah. Wow. Um, when I watch the film, I can just, I can feel the trust that is there. It's really palpable, like people opening up about such traumatic experiences and making themselves vulnerable. Um, and how, like how long on average did you know people before you asked whether you could film them, whether you started before you started filming them, like, um, did you know them long and like, how did you develop that trust with them? Well, it was, it was a little difficult for me because I don't speak Russian. Yeah. Um, nor do I speak Chechen. Mm. And so I was, I was in there with my producer from Russia, Oskar Kurov, who's a well-known dissident filmmaker, queer filmmaker in Russia. Mm. Um, and he had just such a, 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 a trusting demeanor mm. that um, that that people believed him, mm. and as a result, they believed me, mm. and they they very quickly said yes. Now we promised them that we would engage in what we were calling informed consent mm. for appearance in the film. So it wasn't enough for them to just say yes once. Yep. We wanted them yes all through the process, yep. including giving a final security review of all of their footage from the film. Wow. Um, so they could have stopped us at any time, but we, we, we said, we're gonna be, make you our partners in this and give you that power. We didn't wanna take any power away from anybody. Mm. Uh, and the people who are in the film, um, you know, became our partners. Yeah. Now, there are people who wouldn't appear in the film who um, would, when we would be filming, would just be in other rooms. Mm. And But we became partners with them also. So even though we didn't get any of their images on film, we have been in communication with so many of them and we followed them to their new lives and have helped where, where we possibly could to um, attach them to resources wherever they land just to you know join them on their journeys and 
Yeah. And we become this family. I mean, we met them in 2017 and mm. 2021, still in contact with so many of them. Wow. Yeah. And heaps of people have been talking about with this film is that visual effects that you mentioned. And it does make it so much more powerful to be able to see the subject subjects like somewhat and to see some kind of facial emotion there. Um, do you think you would have, what do you think you would have done if that, if you hadn't have been able to find technology like that, would you have just blurred the faces and been like, that's a shame. Or would you have just kept going until you could find an emotionally charged alternative? Uh, I don't, you know, I never entertained the idea of blurring faces. Right. Um, I wanted to do is to create, maybe this is what it was, we were talking about initially about this kind of this power of documentary film. Mm. Like I want to create that powerful connection between the audience and the people who are in the film. Mm. And if you mechanize their voices and uh, pixelate their faces, mm. there's no chance that that relationship is going to develop. Mm. And, um, and what I said to all those kids, I'm going to call them kids because they were mostly so young. Some of them teenagers. Wow. In film. Yeah. Um, uh, I said that I, uh, I wanted to find a way to convey their humanity in the yeah. most essential form to an audience so that they can speak to an audience and they can, they can, you know, reach out through this film bypassing me Mm. to to grab the audience with their story and with this in, this incredible you know historical um, in, inflection point in the world and say this, this is something you need to know about this is something you need to do something about and um, and so that's why we just kept working and working on, on trying to find you know solutions and mm. we've we've in many alleys um, to be frank we we did. You know, we we looked at the possibility of rendering them as cartoon figures. Right. We, we looked at bringing artists in to like create some sort of artistic mask that would follow them. We looked at Snapchat technology. You know, like with bunny ears and and uh, you know the glasses, simple glasses that you can put on. Would that be enough? Enough? Yeah. We we tried to come up with masks like black, just black masks. Yeah. We came up with a whole kind of taxonomy of masks there was the wow. the coach rubber mask and there was yeah. the um, turtle mask and we tried all of them and to see if we could track them on a face and it yeah. was just distracting yeah uh, wasn't until we that this was kind of surfaced as a possibility yeah that you know we're going to be able to show this movie yeah we're going to be able to convince everybody in the film that they're well protected and well discussed and we're going to be able to we're going to be able to let them speak to the audience wow yeah um and i was really amazed to um see in the credits that laura hirschberg was the re-recording mixer like of incredible like massive hollywood blockbusters like the dark knight how did someone of her stature come onto it and um what was it like working with her? And and also how much of that soundtrack was um, uh, constructed or was it mostly archi like the archival audio? 
she, Laura Hershberg is amazing. Mm. She's just a phenomenal um, talent. And um, she also mixed How to Survive a Plague. Oh, right, right, yeah. Uh, and I reached out to her. I was introduced to her because she had been uh, an AIDS activist. She had clocked some time in those trenches. Wow. And, um, and you know, she's, she is one of the few uh, lesbians in that field of, at, at that level. And she was the first um, lesbian to thank her partner at in her Oscar speech when she won the Oscar for Inception, thanked her wife. Yeah. And, um, and she's, you know, she's, she's just amazing. Yeah. And uh, so I went to her with all that ancient VHS footage for how to start. And she said, I want to, I want all of it. I don't want the, just the edited film. I want all of the media. Yeah. And she combed through that media. She didn't want to use any Foley sound or anything. She wanted to use true sound from the time from that archival footage. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and that's where she found the the sound for how to survive a plague. And she did similar work with 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 uh, oh, Welcome to Chechnya, which was uh, shot without the benefit, like like Welcome to, like How to Survive a Plague, shot without the benefit of sound engineers. Hmm. You know, we we couldn't use the sound engineer. We were doing we were just recording on the body mounted camera on this little tourist camera yeah. or on cell phones. Like sometimes I would slide my cell phone over into the action mm. so that I would capture the audio and then um, sync it later. Mm. Uh, and, uh, but so much of that film was shot just on the run using like hidden cameras and the like. And uh, she was able to find that audio and bring it up and make it, um, you know, bring it back to that footage in a way that made it seem as though it had been recorded intentionally. Yeah, it was really, it was really good audio quality. So it was very impressive. We also replaced people's voices. Oh, uh, really? So she she oversaw that work, and we did that using standard and ADR techniques. Um, and so, uh, and uh, I should point out that the people who lent their faces for the as face doubles to to be these human shields, really, for the people who are in the film. They were all mostly queer activists yeah. who volunteered as a kind of an act of activism mm. to do this. Uh, it doesn't require acting. It just requires allowing your face to be um, filmed from many angles and brought into this algorithmic universe. Um, but for voices, we used the same group of people, um, and, ha- and so not actors. Mm. So you know, the method we used was that they would, and they were... Russian speakers, mm-hmm. they would they would hear, they would listen to a sentence and repeat a sentence, listen to a sentence, repeat it, listen to it, repeat it. And then that would be laid down into the um, uh, into the film and sunk with the lips. And wow. I don't remember how many characters there are that are, are, are sunk that way. I think it's seven or eight or nine. Um, but that is also done in a way that's so seamless in, in Laura's uh, universe of... Um, uh, you know, the major Hollywood blockbusters, um, she was able to get down on that granular level and find these matches for these voices in ways that seemed seamless. I hadn't even thought that there would be um, ADR. I hadn't noticed that at all because I was wondering, like, how you would have uh, hidden the vo- the voices. But um, I feel like, yeah, if you would put in that kind of traditional documentary 
robot voice pitched down on it, it just wouldn't have had the same emotional effect, would it? Yeah, it would not. And worse than that, Alfie, is that you can re you can re reverse that. Oh, really? Yeah. Right. yeah. Oh, wow. Pitch it back up. Yeah. It can be rebuilt. Yeah. And, uh, and so that was not a possibility for us. Wow. At all. Yeah. Even if it did good. Um, so, yeah, we went to uh, this kind of traditional looping method. Mm. Well, David, you've got a hard exit, so I'll let you go now. But thank you so much exactly. for that film. It was it was a really incredible watch. And I uh, hope you have a good day. Thank thanks, you, David. Have a good one. Again, thanks so much to David for agreeing to be interviewed. As usual, thanks to Jean-David Le Goulon for the intro and outro music. And thank you for listening and supporting. And if you wanna, if you have if you have any feedback or if you wanna just let me know something, uh, the email is contact at soundperspectivepodcast.com. Hope you have a great day.